awesome song to start our new year off with. All of these really just reflecting on you, reflecting on the great gospel that we have been brought into by your marvelous grace. We thank you for a new year. We thank you for uh, the fresh steps here in 2024. And while we uh, love that and while we look to that, we know that our own actions aren't going to make or break uh, this year either. We are desperate, Lord, for you. We need you, and without you, we are nothing. And so we commit our new year to you, Lord, and we ask for your help that you would, we would find grace to help in time of need, as your word tells us. Father, we pray uh, for this church. We thank you for a new year, a fresh start. We pray for your wisdom and leading in this new year. We're excited what you're doing in our midst. Uh, we thank you for those that you've brought to us this year uh, that we're just getting to know. We thank you for, uh, Lord, what you're doing in the midst of uh, all of the transitions of, of many lives and families. Father, we thank you for how you're working in the midst of leadership and raising up Scott as a deacon. We just lift him to you, Lord, and we look forward to seeing him installed in just a few weeks. We thank you for his labors and Kim, Kimberly's labors here, Lord, and what you're doing in and through them. We thank you for all those that serve so faithfully uh, in many different aspects in this uh, church. We thank you for our Sunday school workers, that you would continue to be with them and uphold them and strengthen them as they prepare uh, lessons, <clears throat> lessons, Lord. We also pray, Lord, that you would be with um, just the, the larger ministry of this church and all those who work behind the scenes to make sure our services uh, not only are uh, functioning and happening, but uh, also our online ministry and those who hear and are touched by that as well. So, Father, we lift these uh, things to you. We lift this year to you uh, for this church, Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose and that many would come to know you through the ministry of this church. Father, we pray for not just ourselves, but other churches in our community. We lift up uh, Emmanuel Independent Baptist Church, Lord, here in the county, that you would be with them, that you would make your gospel known through them, that you would grow them in your grace this year. Father, we also pray for those in our network, in the Reformed Baptist Network, that you would be with them. We lift up Grace Fellowship in Bremen, Indiana, that you would be with them this morning as they meet together and uh, seek to lift you up and worship you, that you would touch them in a fresh way, uh, Lord, through your word and through their time together, that you would encourage them. Father, we know that there's many around the world that are our brothers and sisters that are in prison for the gospel's sake, uh, and some that are even uh, appointed to die. And we don't, uh, we, it just sobers us to realize that there are places like that in the world. And we take our freedoms for granted here in the West. We lift up persecuted uh, Christians in North Korea today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd be with them, Lord, in those dark cells uh, those places of solitary confinement that no man can uh, maybe penetrate, but you, by your Spirit, are able to. And Lord, you are able to comfort them even now. And while we don't know their names, we know that you are able to comfort and encourage and build up. And those that are appointed to, to die, Lord, we pray that you would give them grace to finish well, that one day we may hear their stories and uh, be encouraged uh, by in our own faith, to be bold and to make your gospel known. Father, we pray for unreached peoples around the world. We pray for the Gain people of Indonesia, that, God, you would bring your gospel to them through missionaries, that uh, the word of God would be translated into their language, that uh, we might see in our generation uh, the first believers from this people group. And we look forward to what you will do, and we ask uh, for your grace upon them as we've just celebrated Christmas and go on to a new year and celebrating that you've come and we look forward to your second coming. Uh, there's many who have never heard about your first. And so we pray that you would uh, put that upon the hearts of thousands, Lord, to be raised up this year to go to the mission field. Father, we lift up the trouble spots in many places in our world that our hearts are grieved over. We think of the places uh, at war like Ukraine and in Russia and in Gaza, and the Middle East, in uh, Israel, 
and uh, how that conflict uh, is sparking in, in wider areas in the Middle East. Father, would you just accomplish your purposes? We know that you are sovereign over all. Uh, you told us to expect these things in your word, and so we're praying according to your will that we would uh, see how you work all things according to your will and power, and that you are sovereign over all. Help us to not fear, but to trust you. And Father, we lift up our own government. We pray for wisdom for our leaders, as your word instructs us to do. Uh, we pray for President Biden and others that are uh, leading, Lord, that you would be with them. Father, we pray for those running for office, that you would be with them as well, and uh, that you would help them on the campaign trail as you uh, bring forth uh, those candidates that ultimately will be uh, the front runners for an election this year. And so we uh, lift that to you. We are called as believers to do well uh, for the countries that we reside in, wherever that is. And so help us to uh, be the best citizens that we can possibly be um, before God and before man and seeking to obey you uh, rather than man. Father, we lift up those who are grieving that have lost loved ones. We continue to lift up the D'Amato family, uh, the Prevet family. We continue to lift up the Holden family here in the community that lost uh, Jennifer a few weeks back. Uh, Father, for the Morgans as they uh, grieve the loss of uh, their grandmother. Father, for um, the Schultzes uh, in our extended family that you'd be with them and the death of Hans. And Lord, for uh, George and Grace Ann, Lord, as they continue to grieve, Lord, the loss of Buddy. Uh, we pray for um, uh, Margaret Hefner as uh, I got word today that that um, Brent had passed on Friday, and so you'd be with the Hefners, Lord, and, and uh, encourage them and, and comfort them, Lord, we pray. Father, we thank you for our expectant mothers. We lift up Whitney and Sarah Foster. We uh, thank you, too, for the Finney's grandbaby, and Lord, we're excited what you're doing um, in bringing new life in this new year, and so we pray for these pregnancies, that they would be healthy, and that you would just bring forth these children with no complications, and Lord, we are confident that you are able to do this. And thank you for the joy of children. Father, we pray for those that are struggling that uh, with health. Uh, we pray for um, continued healing for Christina, Lord, as she uh, gets her immunotherapies and uh, those treatments. Uh, Lord, that you would be with her. Father, for Dean Mundy, um, as he continues to battle Bell's palsy. For John Cordy, Lord, as uh, the missionary with RBNet that is battling esophageal cancer, that you would continue to uh, keep him in remission. We pray that these tumors have shrunk and pray for um, wisdom for uh, John and Bethana, Lord, as they go uh, to, to get scans this month, that you'd be with them. We lift up Joe Morris, Lord, as he continues to heal from back surgery and that you would continue to uh, just, just uh, help his, his back to heal quickly, Lord. Thank you that you are able to meet our every need and we do uh, lift up those that are just feeling under the weather or maybe even discouraged this time of the year that you would encourage them. Father, we lift up those traveling. We think of the Smiths, Lord, as Brianna starts um, her first semester at, down in Greenville in college, that you would be with her, that you would bless this semester. Father, that you would surround her with Christian friends, that you would help her to get uh, uh, plugged in with her new church. Lord, that you'd be with Brandon and Chrissy, Lord, as I know they'll miss her and the, the family as well. Lord, that you would just be with them and surround them and encourage them. Pray for others that are traveling uh, with work or with family that you'd be with them. Father, we lift up uh, Christ alone to you. Uh, we thank you for uh, this dear uh, church plant celebrating one year this month. How awesome it is to see what you have done. We uh, have, as the weeks have turned to months and the months now to a year, we're thank thankful for your faithfulness to them. We pray that you would work in and through uh, their lives and, Lord, that you would uh, supply their needs. We pray for Tim this morning as he is under the weather, uh, but able to preach, that you would um, help him, Lord, to uh, be bold and that you would uh, guard his voice and help him, Lord, to uh, deliver your word. Father, we thank you um, for uh, Jonathan and Andrea being with us. We thank you for their family, uh, the whole descent of family, Lord, as they prepare to go to France. Thank you for... Um, them spending uh, one of their last Sundays in the States here with us, and uh, what a privilege and honor that is uh, to hear what you're doing in and through their ministry and their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would provide for them, that you keep them safe as a family, you'd provide uh, the finances for them, Lord. Uh, would you give them fruitfulness in, in ministry there as they uh, depart? 
And uh, Lord, and then finally, would you just continue to work uh, ultimately in the larger picture of what you're doing in France, um, that you would work through this family uh, in the time that they're there. And to give them wisdom with the language, give them wisdom with meeting people. And we just look forward to hearing great stories uh, for what you are doing in and through them. Lord, there's many other things we could spend time praying about, but uh, we commit those to you. I pray that every heart and mind uh, would trust you with their circumstances. And we look forward to what you will do as we turn to your word now. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Happy New Year to each of you. If I haven't greeted you yet, we're glad you are with us and starting off the new year uh, with us uh, worshiping. What an awesome uh, way to not only end a year, but to start a year. Amen. As we worship our great God who is worthy of praise, who has shown himself kind in coming to us and, um, and, and incarnating himself and being a sacrifice for us. And we're going to celebrate that today again as we come to his table in a few moments. But we uh, are going to return here to Genesis chapter 25. If you would turn it in your Bibles, uh, we're just about through this chapter, um, but had been introduced uh, to uh, these twins that wrestled in the womb, Jacob and Esau. So if you would stand with me, we'll read God's word this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 29 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. This is God's holy word. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What is the worst thing you've ever done? Don't answer. That was rhetorical. I don't want to know. But what comes to mind is important in your mind, and you'll see why when we return to that thought here at the end. But if we had a picture, or even were to have Esau come and share about this day, perhaps he would clearly say that his biggest regret, his biggest mistake in life was doing what he did in selling his birthright. Now, I don't know what is the worst thing that you've ever done, but you can associate with Esau in that way that you have great regret. And by God's grace, he's uh, perhaps washed you clean of that, but it's stuck in your mind. Maybe you have trouble forgetting, even though God has forgiven you. And the list could go on in our lives, right, of regrets that we have, the sin that so easily entangles, or maybe the regrets of last year, and you were thinking about a new year and thinking about the freshness of it. Well, this text helps us here to not only see God's ultimate plan and of redemption as we've been seeing all the way throughout Genesis, but as we look at the studies of these characters, of these men and women in the, uh, the narrative of Genesis, they jump off the page at us. We identify with them in many places. And is this not the work of the Spirit as he inspired his word to be historical narrative here in the book of Genesis? And while we have different genres in Scripture, poetry and prophecy and, and others, that we see here in the context of historical narrative that the Lord meets us, the Lord speaks to us, the Lord warns us, and the Lord comforts us. So we look at this text this morning, I, I want to see real queer, clearly, just as we saw as last week, we, we paused and split this into two different um, messages for the purpose of really focusing in on what 
uh, who J Jacob and Esau are and what God is doing in them. In fact, it's one of the most quoted uh, places of Genesis in other places of Scripture as far as what God is doing with Jacob, as we'll see in the story as we go. But in the context of all that God was doing in Isaac and Rebekah, I find it very interesting, and, and maybe you have as well, in the, as you read through this, that Isaac gets very little time as far as developing who he is. And while we know he's the son of Abraham, it quickly goes from Abraham, it acknowledges Isaac taking a wife, and they have twins, and quickly the, the focus moves, it seems, to Jacob and Esau. But we'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 26, that God reiterates his promise to Isaac. And so while Isaac is certainly a part of God's redemptive history here, and certainly is the redeemer of Isaac, as Jesus himself says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we also see here that God is up to something much bigger as far as the longer timeline of what he's accomplishing in human history. But in this text, we see here one of the most interesting uh, communications that happens on this side of the garden. In other words, we know that when Eve took of that fruit and gave to her husband and Adam willingly took it and ate, when they sinned against God, it plunged mankind into the darkness of depravity and rebellion against God. And perhaps no other place is, is quite awestruck in, in the uh, pillars, if you would, of Genesis that we come to a place like this and our breath is almost taken away by the audacity of Esau here in this text to sell his birthright as a firstborn. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Really want to look at this in four very quick, short points. And that is, um, uh, first of all, looking at Esau and his uh, desire here. And what he's doing. So first of all, in verse 29 through 31, we want to look at the providential exhaustion that has come upon him that's mentioned twice in two verses here. Secondly, the poor judgment of Esau. And then thirdly, the pure expediency of Jacob. And I'll explain that uh, because it doesn't look, it doesn't sound like it's something to be applauded. And yet uh, God uses it uh, in the midst of this uh, sibling rivalry that we see. And then lastly, the pathetic state of Esau that we will consider that gives us great warning in our day and age. So as we look at these, let's take a look here at verse 29 here in chapter 25. Out of all uh, that has happened, notice that these men have grown up. We know from chapter uh, 25, verse 27 and following that Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field, and Isaac loved that. He brought uh, his father good game and good food. Uh, and then the closing verses of verse 28 of that section says that Rebekah loved Jacob. And we talked about that, the dysfunction already of a family where parents are showing partiality and, and, and God is working providentially in that. In the womb, there's a prophecy that these two would become two nations, that God is doing something bigger and answered the prayers of Rebekah and Isaac. But right here, it's like a snapshot is taken out of their lives and it's a once happening. Notice the first word here in verse 29 is once. Isn't it interesting how one decision in our lives can alter our whole life? Isn't it amazing how one chance meeting can influence a string of decisions that may or may not be good? Perhaps you can think about when you met your spouse, that first conversation, that if you had never met them, perhaps you would have never married, let alone had children and, and um, had the relationship that you do. Some of us have met people in providential circumstances that God used to uh, put us forward in life in another direction, a, a special meeting or a job or uh, whatever it might be. You children have siblings that God has providentially brought into your lives and they're molding and shaping you, whether you like it or not, to a good end that God has planned. It's part of his overall purpose in your life. We call his providence. Well, right here, we see that happening in the life of these twin brothers. And so it's this once happening 
that in this time and space, in this particular event, Esau is coming back from the field. Notice verse 29, once Jacob was cooking stew. Again, we know from earlier passages that Jacob was a quiet man. He dwelt in tents. Of course, he started his culinary career in his home. He started cooking. It doesn't mean it wasn't, he wasn't manly. In fact, we see in the course of Jacob's life, he's a very manly man, but he's gifted in this area of being involved in the home and doing various homemaking type things. And he was one that dwelt in tents. We don't know much more than that as far as his upbringing. But Esau was a manly man as well, and he's out in the field, and he's a hunter, and he's working hard. He's someone that we could emulate in the sense of, of seeing his hard, hard work and uh, how it pays off. We know that he brought his game to, Esau, or to Isaac, and Isaac loved it. He loved eating what he would kill and bring. But it's in this particular circumstance that it says in verse 29 that as Jacob's cooking the stew, that Esau comes in from the field. And notice here it says, and he was exhausted. Now, Anybody could be exhausted under similar circumstances. And no doubt, this was not the first time he ever came home exhausted. Most men and women who are working come home exhausted. It's normal to be exhausted. But it's interesting how the text through the pen of Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is bringing us these details. That it's the particular state that Esau is in that we must pay attention to. He is exhausted. Is this not true in our lives that sometimes the worst temptation comes when we are tired? When we're worn out? I mean, just take a survey of the Bible. It's, it's when Adam and Eve were hungry that they were tempted to eat. It's when uh, you, you see the anger of uh, Cain and Abel. When he kills Abel, it's in that moment he's angry that he's tempted to take him out. You think of other places where men are tired or women are tired. They're tempted to uh, make uh, amends with their own flesh and they live to regret it. We think of our own Savior as he was fasting, that this was the time that the enemy came to him and tempted him, saying, turn these rocks to bread. And no doubt there was tons of rocks that Jesus could have whatever he wanted to eat. And yet he said, depart from me. Or the temptation uh, to, to take when you were not called to uh, do so. Or other places you think of uh, with David and Bathsheba where he was tempted when he saw um, Bathsheba bathing. It was in a moment of weakness when he should have been at war. He was at home, perhaps discouraged in the kingship, and so on and so forth. We see time after time the temptations of uh, those in the Scriptures, let alone the New Testament. You think of Peter in denying Jesus when he had a ripe opportunity to stand for Jesus. He denied that he even knew him. Or Paul, perhaps one of the lowest points that Paul had in his life was being dropped from a basket and escaping persecution. And God used that to advance the gospel, and ultimately Paul would lay down his life in another way. But God used that, that time, to say, why am I running from these things? And then we see the same Paul boldly walking back into places like Lystra that had almost beat him to a pulp, and he walks right back in there in the strength of the Lord to preach the gospel yet again. And we would call such a man crazy, but these are what God does in the lives of his people. But with Esau, we see that it's in this time of exhaustion. So don't ignore the fact that he is exhausted physically. That is a fact. But notice the context. He's exhausted. He's smelling this stew. And this, this uh, conversation uh, happens. You that have children can maybe even smile a little bit in the sense of how uh, sibling rivalries happen. And uh, we, we see these kind of conversations happening between siblings. It says in verse 30, it says, And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. So it's a request. But notice the request is in the form of an exclamation. He's exhausted. When people are exhausted, they're ill-tempered. They're, uh, we don't know how often Jacob and Esau talked, 
We don't know what the relationship was like. We know that Esau is initiating this conversation, not Jacob. But we know that Jacob is thinking and has been thinking about this whole issue of being the second born. And we know that because of how Jacob acts in this situation, which we'll see. But he clearly takes the initiative, Esau does, to say, I want some of that red stew. And some of you are probably saying, well, if preacher, you'd just shut up, we could go get some stew next door because I smell it right now. Well, the truth is, no doubt, that Jacob was a good cook. But notice here that he, the context of it is just the desire for this food is more important to him than anything. Now, it goes to question. There's not necessarily a famine in the land that we know of. And surely, if Jacob's cooking a stew, there's other ingredients around. I'm sure there's a granola bar somewhere. And surely Rebecca and Isaac are not going to let their son starve, especially if he's been out getting meat for the whole family. And so it's not an issue of, of need here. It's of convenience and of I want it now and I need it and there's nothing more important than what I want. Do you see the character of Esau coming off the page? Very interesting in the note here in parentheses in most of your Bibles at the end of verse 30, it'll say, therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom in Hebrew simply means red. It's, it's actually a form of the same Hebrew word where we get Adam or Adam. It means red or from the dirt. That even it was spoke of that his hair was red, that he was a hairy man, but he wanted some of that red. Literally, the text reads, I want some of that red. Give me some of that red. Isn't it interesting that even there, that red is also a very clear color of redemption, blood that would be shed. But regardless, we see the providential exhaustion that is in his life, but we also see the poor judgment of Esau. Look here at verse, the end of verse, uh, or sorry, uh, verse 31 and 32 here. Jacob responds to Isaac. I mean to Esau, and says, sell me your birthright now. Whoa, wait a minute. What in the world? This conversation went from like zero to 60 in five words. What does birthright have to do with getting a meal, Jacob? And all of a sudden we see the character of Jacob come off the page. Now, if it wasn't for the introduction that the Holy Spirit gave to us about these two, we know that they were wrestling in the womb. And Jacob was holding on to his brother's heel as he was born. So we know that there's this great relationship between these brothers who certainly probably wrestled and fought over many things before this point, let alone the prophecy uh, back in verse 23 that these two nations would war against each other. And so Isaac and Rebekah probably saw this years before this. But notice that it's in this state that Jacob takes the most audacious opportunity to supplant his brother to by the trickery and lowness of this moment of his hunger to wrestle from him the rights of the firstborn you think about that that's deceptive it's wicked it's wrong on many levels but it's just low and through this great act, God actually works to bring redemption to our world. That is simply, simply unbelievable. But look here at the text, what happens? Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. You see in the immediacy of their thinking, Esau... Mr. Harry Man is saying, I'm hungry, and I want it now. And Jacob's like, you know what? I want something right now. I want your birthright. I'm tired of being number two. I will not be overdone. And if you want some of my stew, you're going to sell your birthright to me. Look what Esau says here. He says, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me. 
Now, before we look at how wrong that is, let's consider where he's at. Let's just assume that he's so exhausted he is on death's door. In human reasoning, it would seem that, yes, a bowl of stew is more valuable than a birthright. Why? Because you're not going to live to see your birthright. The reasoning seems like it's there, but that's not the case here. He's over-exaggerating his need for this stew, is he not? He's over-exaggerating that he couldn't wait a few moments when the family meal was served that he could have it without selling a birthright. Could, could there be not another way, Esau, and yet he wants it now? So not only do we see this providential exhaustion, not only do we see the uh, poor judgment of Esau here in this text, but then thirdly here, notice that we see uh, Jacob's expediency in this situation. And I use the word expediency based on this definition. A regard for what is uh, politic or advantageous rather than what is right or just. This sense of self-interest that Jacob has is all about getting what he wants as well. And so notice that this, it's this very conversation that shapes the rest of Genesis in how God is going to use not just only Jacob, but Esau as uh, these nations grow. And so, but notice his expediency is not just tell me to do this. Well, what, is Jacob, what is Esau saying? When he sizes it up, he says, well, what good is it to me? What good is it to me if I'm going to die because I'm so exhausted? He, couldn't, he didn't have the, the, uh, the audacity to think that there was a tomorrow, that God would in fact keep him and provide for his needs. We see this kind of character in Esau that wants now and doesn't even think about tomorrow, but just burns up what he has today. Whereas Jacob, while he's conniving, has a bit of wisdom about him, doesn't he? He's taking advantage of the weakness of his brother and in a moment of weakness that he could secure for himself in a crazy turn of events the very ability to take the birthright from his brother Esau. So Jacob responds to him. Look at verse 33. Jacob is expedient in the way that he does this, not just by saying what he wants, but when he wants it. And he says... Swear to me now. Now, many of us might say, well, it's not in writing. It's not in the fine print. He didn't sign anything. It's just a verbal conversation. Well, in those days, verbal contracts were real. God not only hears them, but others hear them. And there's often witnesses. I just want to encourage us that what we say matters. This is one of the, the bold warnings to us, that what comes off our lips sometimes will come back to haunt us. And we're called by, as God's people, to speak truth. And Jesus himself said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And maybe in the new year, that's a good principle for us to remember that you will be bound by the words of your mouth. Proverbs is full of wisdom telling us if you have bound yourself in a, a foolish way, especially a financial way is a lot what we see in the Proverbs. It says, make, make like, deliver yourself like from the hand of a hunter. Like you're running for your life. That's the kind of, of, of diligence you should have in running from your, the words of your mouth in wicked ways that way. And so we see here that Jacob wants it now. He says, swear to me now. And so he swore to him, Esau did, and sold his birthright to Jacob, sealing it with an oath. That's what it means to swear. This isn't, for you children, this isn't foul language. It's actually a swear or a, 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 a commitment to what is being said. And so he's saying, brother, I want you to swear to me. I want you to, to make an oath to me that this will be. And Esau does that. And so then we see here, the pathetic state, it, we get the actual narrative of this transaction. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. You see, there was somebody in the kitchen that day that saw and heard 
all of this. And it was the Lord. He had providentially put these circumstances together, but these men made their choices. They are responsible to a sovereign God for what they have done. But God, who is sovereign over all things, uses these things for His purposes and for His glory. And we see right here that while He sold a great exchange of His own birthright for simple lentil stew and bread, this horrible transaction that He certainly lost out on he did get to eat and drink. What a, a weighty verse in Scripture. How often does God give us what we want only to find out of how stupid we were? Only to find out how foolish our decision was. And how gracious God is to show us that foolishness that we might not do it again. And so we see here this sense of God working in the midst of this conversation, this foolish decision of Jacob and, uh, uh, and, and Esau. But I, I want us to kind of pull back out before we make some application here about ultimately what God is doing. We do know that the rest of Scripture comments on these verses. We know that these two nations will become greater nations and we'll spend time with those as we go along in the narrative of Genesis. We know that Esau names his first two sons um, after the Lord in many different ways. And so there's, there's ways that Esau himself from this point on was certainly uh, weeping about his decision, but that he honored the Lord in some ways uh, through his life, even though they became enemies. And so notice here, even listen, just, just a, a cross section of some of the prophecies of what God did in choosing Jacob over Esau, as we see in the narrative of all Scripture. But Psalm 135, verse 4 says this. It says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Isaiah prophesies later on in the history of Israel. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took the ends from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Later on in Isaiah chapter 43, it says this, it says, But now, thus says the Lord, that he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. One chapter later in Isaiah 44, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Later on, at the end of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah's possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Ezekiel, in a similar light, says in chapter 20, verse 5, As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. In the sense of judgment on Israel later on in their history, he says, will judge them, son of man, will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. And on that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And then finally, perhaps one of the most familiar, is the last prophet in the Old Testament, um, as far as order is concerned, uh, the way it's given to us, is Malachi. And Malachi says this in chapter 1. He opens the prophecy with this, saying, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
I have laid waste his will, hill country rather, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A few quotes there of prophecy, and the reason I say that is we're connecting this to a larger working of God as far as redemptive history of Israel right here that starts here in this text. We know that from the prophecy of verse 23 that these two nations are at at war and these peoples will be divided and one will be stronger than the other but the older will serve the younger. Esau is going to serve his brother. And so even though this is a diabolical conversation that certainly has a loser and certainly has a winner who gambled everything away for stew and yet Jacob gains through this. I want us to see here and not miss this this morning that it's just not just a a sappy story about two boys with one who did a really bad thing and one who did a really bad thing or a less bad thing and ended up getting uh, swindling his brother out of a great treasure. But help us to understand here the understanding of birthright. Birthright came through the firstborn. This has always been with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Again, this is why Abraham said, that uh, God, why don't you just use Ishmael? And God says, no, it will come from Sarah's womb. It's going to be your firstborn son. We see this all the way through the scriptures, that the firstborn was one that would be set apart for the Lord. The birthright would go through the firstborn. And so it's in this case that Jacob, there's no way that he can have that birthright. In God's providential timing, there is no way that he would be the firstborn. He wasn't the firstborn. Are you frustrated in your life with the providential circumstances that God has given you? Are you frustrated that God hasn't given you this or that ability? I think speaking to us from the text here is a reminder to us that God has ordered our lives. He knows when we were conceived. He knows the day we'll take our last breath. He knows all things. But He's also a God that's a part of the details of our life. That He loves and cherishes us. He does care for our needs. And yet right here we see that while these two men are no better than each other, that God is using these circumstances to bring about His ultimate power and will and ultimately will usher forth a firstborn that one day will save us from our sins. This is the story of the Scriptures. But I think also there's several warnings here. First of all, are we listening to God's providential working in our lives, in our families? Isn't it interesting in the context of families that we see this in Genesis? The first murder of the Old Testament happened between brothers. The first sin of the world happened in a marriage. The, the first birthright selling here that we see is happening in the context of family and around a meal. God is wanting to redeem us and he uses the very small areas of our life to, in a huge way, impact us. So this is, if this isn't a reason that we should tell our culture that we need to be eating together as families, I think that's a good one here. Good conversation happens at families, but we also know, and we probably all have memories, of meals gone bad. Like, did you have to say that? It ruined the entire meal. And I don't know about you, but we have uh, food flying all the time at our family meals, and sometimes more meals are, are more enjoyable than others, depending on who said what joke or what the seriousness or the weightiness of the, the issues of the day. We surely know what it means to speak over one another, because if you don't do that, then you're not going to get heard. Well, in this context, this is the context that God chose to birth forth a nation for himself. And I want to not just bring our attention to that providence there, but also that the character of both Jacob and Esau is something we ought to learn from here. 
I, I think we can learn really from Jacob in this sense, which, which the scriptures also talk about Esau, but Jacob first is not seen as this really holy character. He stands apart from others in scripture, doesn't he? He's a swindler. He, I mean, he tricks people. Just wait until we get to these other chapters. He tricks people all the time. And God blesses him even though he's doing such wicked things. And so if there's ever a story of God showing grace amidst the faulty character of someone, Jacob is your man. But I want to focus here on Esau because the scriptures do focus on him. That he made this foolish decision to sell his birthright. His pathetic choice here is told to us even in the book of Hebrews. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 real quick. Hebrews 12. Man, that wind's blowing, isn't it? I thought somebody was whistling in the back. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Again, we don't have a time to be exhaustive on all these things, but notice it says this. It says, well, in the, in the context of Hebrews, again, written to persecuted Christians, encouraging them to keep on keeping on. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Continue to, to seek the Lord. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't grow weary. These are all encouragement of, of Hebrews. Um, really to consider him who endured such sin for us. We get to this place here in verse 12 of chapter 12. It says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Sounds like exhaustion, doesn't it? Sounds like maybe how Esau felt when he came in from the field. You exhausted starting the new year? Listen, it says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Again, God is always wanting to heal us and bring us back to attention. So it says this, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So again, a sense of strength, a sense of healing, striving for peace. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? Failing to obtain the grace of God. Something that we, it's, it's like we're called to do something, but it's really a call to receive something. In other words, stop acting in your own strength. And so it says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's a warning against bitterness. Look at verse 16 now. This is where Genesis is quoted. That no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And we'll, of course, come back to this when this comes to fruition later on in the story of Genesis. But the reason we, I brought you here is that this very text is used by the author of Hebrews to give a great warning that we ought not to do likewise. In other words, he even ties it here to sexual immorality. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, the hunger of our fleshly bodies. How often is it that we sell the sacred for stew? Paul, speaking to the Philippians, said this in Philippians that false teachers and those who have rejected the truth often can be seen as Esau types. And he says this in chapter 3. Well, if you look at verse 14, Paul says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's requiring and reminding them of the great gospel that they have received. 
but he contrasts this even with those who would turn from that and would be seen as those who have sacrificed all for their causes. And ultimately, I'm sorry, I just read Ephesians. I meant Philippians chapter 3. But in this context of what he's saying to them, he contrasts this with their false teaching. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, says this. He says a similar thing to the uh, Ephesians. That's why I got messed up there. He says this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me uh, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And here it is, verse 19. Their end is destruction. God, Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly Things. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what is this contrast here? That those who are looking for heaven, it doesn't mean that we're, we're not going to eat, we're not going to uh, do what the, the body needs. He's just saying the sense of how is it that, that our God becomes our belly? That these that have that have turned away, have sold the sacred for a bowl of stew in the same way that Esau has done. And so there comes the warning right here from the text. In what ways have we often traded food for friendship with God? The earthly for the eternal. The desires of the flesh for the divine nature. Hunger and all the desires of the body for the holy. Stew for even salvation. In what ways do we and are we tempted to sell that which God has given us to satisfy an earthly and temporal need? And either way we look at this, every time we sin, we do this, don't we? We say that, God, what you have for me is not as good as what I can get my way. And isn't this the story of the Scriptures? That mankind has fallen into such depravity that we would do such atrocious things. Coming back to where we started, what is the worst thing you've ever done? How is it that God has used that to show your great need or your own foolishness? Well, in closing, I want to turn to Romans chapter 9 and give us some hope that God is the one who is orchestrating all these things for your good and even the worst thing that you've ever done is used as a spotlight to draw you to himself. Paul, in writing this to the Romans, his great encouragement is ultimately to see that his uh, people, the Jewish people, would come to faith in Christ. They were rejecting the gospel, and it really affected Paul. Paul said these are the ones that were so close, they, they have the the, the very human tradition of it. They have the scriptures. They have everything they need. They're so close. And yet they're not saved. So hear it from Paul's own mouth. I'm just going to read. Look at Romans 9 verse 1. It says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see his emotional estate? He's exhausted. He's praying. He's torn up. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you hear Paul's words there? He has become so Christ-like in his life that he's willing to be pushed outside of Christ that others would be saved. This sacrificial heart that he has that they would come to know Christ. And so he says in verse 4, they are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs that we're studying about. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who God is overall blessed forever. Amen. And he continues, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
words, we, we look at that in the scriptures, don't we? We're reading in Genesis and we're, we're seeing this great plan of redemption that God is going to accomplish something that is going to, uh, to reverse the curse in this way that we've been reading since Genesis 3. And it seems like everything keeps going downhill and getting worse. But in verse 6 he says, For not all that are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. That's quoting what we looked at with Abraham's life and how he struggled there. And then in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise accounted as offspring. We looked at this a few weeks ago in, in the book of Galatians. He makes this same argument that God's people are those who are by faith. It's not just this physical offspring birthright issue, although this is how God is using it. And then in verse 9, it says these very important words. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, next generation it says, but also Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing wrong or had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Notice Paul is expositing this very passage that we're looking at. He's pulling these things apart and showing that God is choosing Jacob clearly and he's rejecting Esau to carry this birthright into the future. He has not done this. As it is written, he quotes Malachi 3, which we looked at a few minutes ago. Jacob loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul's argument here is, in human reasoning, we would think, God, this is not fair, this is not just. Oh, is there? Look at how he responds, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh even, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so when he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Will it say to the molder, why have you made me like this? The potter has, no, uh, has, right, has not right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And his argument goes on, time fails us to be able to look at this great um, uh, teaching of Paul here in Romans 9. Why did we go there? I think it's important here in the very context of what we're looking at in Genesis to see that God is working in his sovereign power to bring about his purposes, but not without seeing the very free choices of both Esau and Jacob in the process in this text. It's, it's, it's genius how Paul takes this and uses this as an argument to show what God is doing ultimately in justifying those who are wicked, his people, and then yet there are some that have rejected that that are ultimately bound for destruction. And so why do I say that to us this morning? What in the world does this little conversation have to do with us here at the start of 2024? And my argument is that it has everything to do with us you, in God's great purpose and plan, are here this morning reading this text, hearing the word preached, and you have the most amazing opportunity to see, hear, and know of God's great mercy upon you. 
We just prayed for unreached people groups who have never heard. And for whatever providential reason, they have not yet had the scriptures in their language. But you are hearing the word preached week after week after week. And we have an accountability to our great God, to this great gospel that we have seen and heard the glorious truths that we've just celebrated in this Christmas season, that God has come to us, that he has showed mercy upon us, that he has died in our place, and he is calling us to faith and repentance in his name, and that is given to you as a gift. And some of us might be thinking, well, why is he not given to others? Well, we don't have answers to such questions all the time. Although we can look at the scriptures and see that God has preached to all and that all are, have no excuse before him. Read the beginning of Romans. We are all fallen short of the glory of God. But God in his great grace has brought you here this morning to hear his great gospel. And one of the best things you can do with your new year is listen to the great exchange that he's offering you this morning. We just read it, this horrible, ex- this horrible exchange between Esau and Jacob. It didn't seem fair, right? But Jacob goes away with this glorious inheritance and Esau hanging his head even though he's got a full stomach. And we who can associate with Esau that every time we sin, we sell the sacred for whatever selfish thing that we want. And we're left hanging our heads. And yet this morning, God has called to us in Christ and saying, I'll reverse this. I will take your sin upon myself and I will give you a glorious inheritance in Christ. Not just the forgiveness of your sin, past, present, and future, but I will give you a glorious inheritance that you will celebrate with me forever and ever and ever. That, my friends, is a miracle. That we would be offered such an exchange when we deserve exactly what Esau has. So what about you? Where are you at this morning? Have you made this great exchange with this holy God? Have you given him and admitted and repented of your sin and turned in faith to him? Or are you instead hanging on to your lentil stew to find yourself completely separated from God? and just tasting the very common graces that God gives humanity until you plunge into eternal darkness and separation from God and his people forever. I'm fine that this is a very sobering passage. I can see myself doing exactly what Esau did. But by God's grace, we see God working in the life of Jacob from here on out, which the story of Genesis will follow. And God is giving that to you, that opportunity to not make that horrible exchange of your soul for something so sinful and that you instead would take his righteousness and rejoice and take and eat. And as we prepare to come to God's table, that's exactly what we're celebrating, this great exchange that has happened. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we think about how God has used these providential circumstances, not just in our own lives, but in Jacob and Esau's life to bring about great hope and great redemption. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us through this text that seems so small and yet it's connected to so many other passages of Scripture. No doubt we will return to this topic. We see you work providentially in Esau's life from this point on and Jacob's life. But Lord, I, I pray for us this morning as we are challenged by your word that often we too have not in the same way in circumstances as Esau because that was a, a huge weight that he was able or have, having to bear after this point of great regret that he could never return or uh, redeem. But Lord, you are able to do so. That we are dead indeed to sin. We are default location is for your judgment but you stepped in and you made a great exchange you came to us when we were exhausted lord oftentimes we come in exhausted working in our own strength and you by your grace want us to stop trading foolishness you don't need our help you want to give us your grace 
your life, your help. And Father, I thank you for this reminder this morning that we can have that, that we are able to turn from our sin. And you're letting us hear these words that we might have life and that times of refreshing may come to us in the Lord. And so, Father, I pray for each one. Perhaps one has never turned in faith to you. I pray that they would. Either those here or those listening online, we pray, too, that you would work in our hearts to accept our providential circumstances and how you're working in those. That you would guard our judgment, Lord, and our words, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we foolishly uh, exchange words at times. Father, that you would help us to see the pathetic state of Esau and not do the same. It's given to us as a warning in Hebrews that we would not be so profane, but Lord, that we would run after your holiness. And Lord, that you would make us and form us to whom we ought to be. Lord, as we go into a time of response and prepare for your table, Lord, would you guide us and help us to look upon your glorious sacrifice and how we gain from such a sacrifice. And so, Lord, as we respond to this, may you use these words in however way that you would see fit. And we'll give you all the glory because we know it's for our good as well. Amen.